Well, good morning again, everyone. I hope that your week went well. I had a very busy week as I changed out the first story windows in my house. Big shout out to my mom and dad who came out to help and a few friends that popped in a few days. But you know, it's always a good week when you can, you can say on multiple occasions and times, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> Just makes you feel good. But you know, a, a week like this kind of gets you out of your normal routine a little bit. And it makes you see how many times we like habits. We like to be a creature of habit. You know, we like those routines, we like those patterns that we can get into. Uh, we like life to be a little predictable. But, you know, life continues to go on even as these types of things come into play. As we come to our passage today, I was stumped a little bit this week. See, we're going to be talking about the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And you could think, well, why would you be stumped? We talk about this kind of stuff all of the time. Well, just kind of get you into my mind a little bit, stumped in terms of, because I had so much other stuff to do, there was this push in my mind, it's like, oh, I can slack off a little bit, because you know it so well. Or on the other side, well, they hear it so many times, you gotta, you gotta find something new to share, because otherwise they're just gonna be bored. And you have these attacks that happen in your life. Just change around the scenario a little bit. Well, you, don't, you, you read the Bible yesterday. You don't have to read it today. You've already, you've already read this passage multiple times. Why don't you pick up something else and read that instead? These types of attacks that come into our life to pull us away from our first love, things that we need to be on guard for in our life. You know, as I was preparing this week, as I was reading over this passage, there's a lot of different new things that, that came to my mind. You know, for instance... Uh, we all know that there were two thieves, criminals crucified with Jesus. But what stuck out to me this time was there was two people that were also going to be crucified, whether or not Jesus was, in Jerusalem in the middle of a feast time. Life was continuing on as normal, even though they had this feast going on in their life. Many times in life, you're going to have things that come up that can surprise us. And you know, with everything that I had going on this week, I think in God's timing, he knew that I would need this type of week, this type of passage. Luke doesn't go into a lot of theological explanations with what he gives. He simply tells what happens, and he leaves it up to the reader to see and believe. We see a lot of different interactions from various walks of life that we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at how people respond when they are met with the cross and why that is important for all of us to understand as well. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke chapter 23. I'm going to begin in verse 26 today. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, 
who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Father, Father, it is difficult to read these words, knowing what it is that you have gone through for our sakes. Lord, I pray that you would humble us today. That you would drive your truth into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we begin looking at this passage, I just want to start off by talking a little bit about crucifixion. Crucifixion was a horrible way to die. You think of the various forms of the death penalty that maybe you 
know about or read about in history. I mean, we're so humane nowadays. We just inject a nice lethal dose of poison and drugs into people. But you know, we've had the electric chair, we've had hangings, we've had firing squads, guillotines, so many different ways to torture someone until the point of death. With crucifixion, death does not come quickly. It's not from a loss of blood. Really, it comes from suffocation. Because you are so exhausted, because your body is hanging and in in your body is compressing against your lungs to where you cannot breathe. And it's a slow, painful type of death, agonizing, where you are struggling and fighting for that breath. Your hands and feet are nailed or tied to a cross and you're hung up on display, usually naked, maybe a loincloth, to add to different humiliation, to add to the mocking nature. The way that you would be hanging on a cross, as I said, it puts pressure on your lungs and your feet are situated in such a a way that you can get just enough strength to lift up your body so that you can take a deep breath before you slump back down into shallow breathing. Truly vicious way to die. Beforehand, many times you'd be whipped, scourged, beaten, so you would have open sores on your body. Your your body would be throbbing in pain. If you had nails driven through the excruciating torment of that, It's the cat of nine tails seen in the movie The Passion that really always got to me when the flesh is just ripped off of Jesus' body. And you begin to think, this is what Jesus went through for me. Kind of makes your stomach sick a little bit. But you see that love that he has. In contrast to this description of crucifixion, of the, the, the suffering, the death, the torture, the hatred that is seen with the cross, Jesus is bringing out love, compassion, and forgiveness, even to those who are crucifying him. He prays for their ignorance. He has compassion on those who are crucifying him. He, he, he has concern and love for the sympathizers who are weeping for him. In the middle of his torment, his pain, near the end of his life, he is able to still manifest what it means to follow the will of God to the very end. Jesus has shown his disciples how to live. Now he's going to show them how to die. Do you ever think about your own death? What it's going to be like? what type of opportunities you might have to show God glory with your last breath. If you're like most people, you probably hope that you're going to pass away quietly in your sleep. No pain, comfortable. Jesus has many opportunities left to share the glory of God as he faces death. There are many people who are around Jesus that Luke makes mention of here in this passage. Many who will be witnesses to his death. Many who will see the cross 
and then have to respond. Starting with Simon of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is a place in northern Africa. We don't know much about Simon. Perhaps he's just a traveler passing through. Maybe he's an immigrant. Maybe he's a Jew there for, on pilgrimage for the Passover feast. We're not sure. What we do know is he is pressed into service by the soldiers. Jesus alludes to this in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, if a soldier, if somebody asks you to carry his bag one mile, you go two. That's kind of what's going on right here. Soldiers had this power to, to make somebody do this. See, it's, it's traditional for a condemned person from where they're condemned to then carry at least the crossbar of the cross out to the place of crucifixion. More punishment being added on to their shoulders, literally. And you know, as the other Gospels explain, Jesus has been whipped, he has been beaten, he has been flogged, he has open bruises all over his body. So the soldiers ask Simon to help. They enlist him, they don't ask, they just tell him to do it. We don't know what happens to the rest of the story with Simon. But he is around Jesus, especially as he has this next interaction with the mourners. You know, there was, I guess it would be a job title of professional mourner in this time period, where people would just come and mourn around people that die. You know, you had this, this group of women that were coming up, um, women of Jerusalem, so this wouldn't be Jesus' followers. Um, and they, they come up and they're weeping for Jesus. Only Luke records this incident. And I think that it's connected to what Jesus says about the fate of Jerusalem back in chapter 19. Let me turn back there and read that for you. Beginning in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they are now hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your little and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another one in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So kind of with this context in mind, we look at Jesus' response here. And his response would be a little bit of a shock, I think, to these ladies. First, he says, don't weep for me. You know, don't, don't weep for me, the one who's being crucified, the one who is about to die. Instead, weep for yourselves. Jesus doesn't want our tears. He wants our repentance. He is urging them to mourn their own fate and the fate of their children. Now, these verses probably will have in mind the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but we can also see points to the tribulation in Revelation 6, especially as it says that you're going to be hiding, you're going to be looking for cover from the rocks that are going to be falling. Secondly, Jesus says, blessed will be the barren women. Now again, remembering the context in the Jewish society, barrenness is seen as a punishment. It's seen as a curse from God. So why would Jesus be saying that it's blessed? It's blessed because he knows the destructions that's going to happen. The horror and the terror that's going to happen for these women who have, 
going to have to watch their children suffer and die. He's wishing that they could be spared from all of that anguish. And then we see this proverb-like saying here to kind of tie it all together. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, the tree being green, this kind of denotes the blessing of God. This represents life, whereas dryness would represent deadness. It would represent divine judgment. So if, if God allows Jesus, who is innocent, to be punished in this way, what does that say for Jerusalem, who is guilty? What is that destruction going to look like? Now, we as believers should have this same type of approach. We should have this same type of outlook in our lives. We are secure. We know that our victory is in Jesus. We know what will happen to us as believers. So our focus should be on those who do not know him. That's why many times at a funeral, we, the purpose of a funeral many times is to minister to those that are, are left, to minister to those who are living, not to the deceased. Because there's still opportunities for them to hear the gospel message. In the next section here, beginning in verse 32, we see a flurry of people that are kind of briefly mentioned here. The two criminals that get a larger section a little bit later on. Um, you have the centurion or the guards. You have the people and you have the rulers. The guards are seen dividing up the clothes. This fulfills a prophecy in Psalm 22. You have the crowds who are just kind of watching. Maybe they're curious. Maybe they're uninvolved. But for whatever reason, they've come out to the cross today. The rulers continue their mocking ways, trying to stir up the crowds. They mock him about being the chosen one of God, the Christ. The soldiers chime in with the same type of mentality, the same type of ribbing. And then, of course, we see the inscription that is placed above. The king of the Jews, this one. It would be written in three different languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, so that all who would pass would know who Jesus is. All who would be by the cross hear or see the truth of who Jesus is. How would they respond? We see within this Jesus' prayer. He prays to forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Who is them? It's kind of tough to pick out the antecedent there, the them that he is referring to. Within the direct context, it probably would be the soldiers. But then you have that statement of them not knowing what they're doing, and to me this shows ignorance. So could this include the crowds as well? Could this include the criminals? Perhaps. Either way, Jesus does not consider these them hopeless, and he prays for them. It's up to them to then respond to that prayer. And, you know, you look at this prayer, even in the midst of him hanging on the cross, even in the midst of him having his clothes divided up, being gambled in front of him, and and him seeing who the new owner of these clothes are going to be. 
to see the people so hardened that they just come out for an execution because it's entertainment, to just join into the mocking, to see the guilty people hanging right next to you. The darkness of this world can be staggering to understand and witness at times. But Jesus still prays to forgive them, even as they're doing all of this to him. What kind of faith would that take in our own lives to say those same things when we're surrounded by darkness to pray for those who might be persecuting us? Stephen, while being stoned, says a very similar phrase. So the ability that we see here of Jesus to continue to show compassion, forgiveness, and love while going through immense suffering, torment, torture, it kind of puts the little things that I have going on in my life into perspective. Kind of puts on display my impatient attitude, my anger at situations because things don't go my way. showing me that I need to look more upward rather than inward. This time around as I was reading this passage, the phrase that really stuck out to me and kind of got to me was the rulers. And they're saying here, he saved others, let him save himself. First, he saved others. Truth. In fact, he's going through the most atrocious action to continue to save others, to save the world. What an awesome God we have. Let him save himself. Well, he doesn't need saving because he's not guilty. And sure, I know what they mean in terms of physically take themselves off of the cross and prove that you're God, prove that you're the Christ. But as Jesus tells Pilate in the book of John, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And you know, I think back to last week's message. Even if Jesus come off the cross, what did Jesus say last week? So what if I told you that I'm the son of God? You're not gonna believe me anyway. So what if I come off of the cross? You're still not gonna believe me. Some people are just so hardened to the truth that they just don't wanna see it. And with the criminals, we get a little glimpse of this, I think. We see two attitudes, two approaches to Jesus that I think are very popular in our world and even in the church today with the first criminal, says that he is railing at Jesus, according to the ESV. That term railing, it is blasphemy in the Greek, meaning that he is trying to harm Jesus' reputation. He is sp speaking ill and falsely of Jesus. He goads him, you know, are you the Christ? You know, if you are the Christ, then save yourself and us too. He's the type of person that is approaching Jesus for what he can get out of it. Do we see those types of people in church that just want their ticket to heaven, that just want that healing, that just want that gold dust from the sky? 
Yeah. Unfortunately, we do. I see it in the world around us, too. What does your God offer that my other beliefs don't? An attitude that is me-centric, that wants to put what I can get out of Christ for myself, having the selfish motives. But then we see the other attitude from the other criminal. He rebukes the other man. I love it. Do you not fear God? What a bold statement. A statement that would get scoffed at today. Fear God? Which God? Why should I fear God? Who is God? In this context, in the Old Testament context especially, you would have believers, whether they were Jews or not, that would often be called God-fearers. Okay, so it's associated with this understanding of belief here. Now, this wouldn't mean that they were the most devout people, but it would also not mean that they were depending on their Jewish ancestry to get them into heaven. They simply feared God. And we don't know if these men were Jews. They were just simply criminals. And the second criminal kind of takes the approach that the tax collector takes. He admits his guilt. He understands that he is guilty. Uh, He admits that he's a sinner. He defends Jesus' innocence. Yet another person that Luke is showing that is claiming innocence for Jesus. And he requests for Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. He claims nothing to deserve the mercy of Jesus, but simply asks for grace in the face of his guilt. You know, people will often ask, what do I gotta do to be saved? What is it, what do I have to do to be saved? And you can go to so many different places in the Bible. There's different, definitely shorter verses. You know, think of the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your family. Think of Romans 10, eight and nine. Confess the Lord with your mouth. Believe in your heart that he is Lord and you'll be saved. John three sixteen. so on, so on, so on. You have all of these verses that talk about salvation. But I think that this criminal here today shows all of the other criminals, those who have broken the laws of God, a real practical example, admitting our guilt, defending the innocence, the supremacy, the necessity of Jesus and trusting that he is the judge, the giver of mercy and grace. And we see this criminal, he he receives far more than what he expected. As Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And and you know, for for believers, if we've experienced the grace of God, isn't that so true? It, It is so much more than what we would have ever anticipated. It is such a deep thing, and we continue to grow in our understanding of that grace and what we've received each and every day. Again, our God is amazing. It's a wonderful promise and hope that is found. But you know, with all of this, the cross is not just a place where forgiveness and compassion and love were shown. We also see judgment. God's judgments on the sins of the world, being paid for through the atoning work of Jesus by giving his blood as sacrifice. Looking at that section starting in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
So this would be from noon to 3 p.m. Scroll down here. Now, I don't know the different things that maybe you've heard in past, but I've heard it explained that this darkness was probably a solar eclipse. And, you know, if you hear that kind of thing, it should raise a red flag in your mind. Because a couple years ago, uh, we went down to Rockport, Missouri, and saw the solar eclipse. And I can tell you it was all maybe 10 minutes, a couple minutes only of the darkness, not three hours worth. And then if you're an astronomer, you also know that a solar eclipse happens on a, f on a new moon. Wait, which one is it now? New moon or full moon? Um, if you're an astronomer, obviously I'm not. But the solar eclipse happens with the new moon, not the full moon. This would have been a full moon since it's the 15th day uh, of the month of Nisan. So it would have been just, just past that. So they would have just had the full moon that they would have had there. So even logistically speaking, a solar eclipse doesn't fit. But with this darkness, I believe that it was a very literal and a very symbolic darkness. Literal and yes, I believe that it was dark. Not pitch black, but like an eerily dark. I don't know if you remember last August with the derecho that went by. I can remember sitting at the kitchen table. It was 9 o'clock in the morning, starting school with the kids. And I just, man, it's dark. You go outside and it just, you had that ominous feeling. It's like, this is not right. And then also very symbolic in terms of when you look at the wrath of God being poured out. There are many references in the Bible that talk about darkness and wrath. I'm going to read a couple of them with you today. I'm going to flip over to Isaiah, just because that chapter has two of them. But you can write these down and you can go back and, and look at them in your leisure time. But Isaiah chapter 5, verse 30 says, they will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Then chapter 60, verse 2. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Amos 5, 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And you can write down the rest of those uh, and read those in, in your own time there. But you know, this idea of darkness... 
it presents this understanding, even as Jesus said in the garden, for it is the power of darkness. It is their hour that is at hand. This is the wrath of God, the judgment of God being poured out on Jesus. Along with the darkness, we see the veil being torn. Now what is interesting here in Luke is that it happens before Jesus' death. In the other Gospels, it happens after his death, making it seem more like a benefit. But with Luke, it almost seems like it's more of a punishment for the Jews. Could it be both? You know, in their way of thinking, um, it kind of plays into that way of thinking in terms of how their beliefs work. You know, you think about what the veil represents. The veil was separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It was put in place by the command of God, and it allowed this attitude to grow over the years in the Jewish faith, where God is unapproachable. You know, the veil is put there for good purposes. It is um, for their sin. It is a protection because of God's holiness. So when we think about this, you would have once a year that the, the high priest would go in to make sacrifices on behalf of the people and they would tie a rope to him just in case he fell dead in the presence of God and they, that way they could pull him out. You know, you think about what this veil means to the Jewish people. It represented this separation between God and men. And now it was torn. What would this mean for them? Symbolically, it shows the availability of God to the people, that the separation is no longer there. So I think that it still can be viewed as both based on the attitudes that you're approaching your faith. I think that this was a huge stumbling point for a lot of the Jewish people. Came up with an analogy this week. Let's see how it works. Let's say that you have a house full of kids and you're in the bathroom and the door is locked and they can only communicate to you through that door. Now, some of the kids could use this time to act up, to bully others, getting into things that they shouldn't be. Some of the kids could sit right there by the door waiting for you to open it. Then when they're least suspecting it, the door opens those kids who are getting picked on will find comfort and justice as they run into your arms. Those who are doing the bullying and picking on will try to hide to get away from their punishment. The veil has had a representation of separation in the history of Israel, and it is no more because Jesus bridges that gap between God and man. And we praise him for that relationship. Now, one last thing about this scene of the cross that, that I thought was really big this time around. I love how Jesus uses his last breath to cry out to God, in your hands I commit my spirit. Beautiful words, beautiful action here. But I want us to remember what I had talked about in terms of crucifixion and the struggle that it is to just breathe. To be able to cry out, to be able to shout, 
to be able to muster the strength to fight for that last breath. It's hard to describe or appreciate unless you've witnessed someone struggling for breath taking that last breath, how much energy it takes just to breathe. How precious are these words that he would use up his remaining life, his remaining energy to praise God in this way. It shows that it takes all of Jesus on the cross. He doesn't spare an ounce for himself. He gives everything that he has to the Father. As believers, we should spend every day like this, dying to ourselves so that Christ may live in us, saying as we start out our days, Lord, in, into your hands I commit my spirit, I commit my day, I commit my words, my actions to your will, to your desires, and not my own. What a radical way to live our lives. As Jesus dies, the light bulbs begin to go off. People are responding. Eyes are opened. First with the centurion here, who sees what happens, begins to praise God, saying, surely this man was innocent. In the other gospels, surely this man is the son of God. The crowds, the random bystanders, they go away beating their breast. Again, a call back to the tax collector. It's a form of remorse, a, a form of understanding innocence, of regret. Those who are his disciples are from Galilee, they stand at a distance, patiently waiting. There's no more mention of the rulers, no more scoffing, no more mocking, no more railing, no more blasphemy. Death is somber. It really puts things into perspective when it comes to everything else that might be going on in life, whether it's a window project, a graduation party, busy work week. Death focuses on our mortality. It shows us that we all have an appointment but as believers, we don't need to fear it because our hope is in Christ. We rejoice because if we live today, great. More opportunities to serve him. If we die today, that is our gain. We get to go be with him. You know, as Jesus went to the cross, it was because it was God's will and his plan for salvation to save his people from sin. For us as believers, our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. It is in the atoning work of his death and resurrection. Our hope of salvation is in the grace that is offered by God because of the sacrifice that was freely given by his son. Paul tells this to the Corinthian church in chapter five of, of 2 Corinthians. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' death is viewed by many different people, and they each responded in different ways. For those who have experienced the cross, for those who have heard the gospel message, it is then upon them to respond. We all stand guilty because of our sin. But that guilt, that sin is taken away by Jesus on the cross. We stand in his righteousness, and it is a glorious thing. So this week, as we think about how we have been reconciled to the Father, we praise him for what he has done, and we look expectantly that he will come again in glory. The burden is on us then to respond once we have heard. How is Jesus impacting you today? Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, many of us, Lord, have heard your gospel message so many different times. We've read over the, the crucifixion and death of your son. Sometimes, Lord, it can just be like old hat. We can get bored with things. But Lord, I pray that we would not throw away our first love so easily. I pray that we could be so enamored with your word as it is the first time that we have read it. That we can see your love being poured out each and every day. That we can grow in our understanding and our relationship with you and that your gospel message will continue to inspire us, to, to move us, to change us with your sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, do not let us hear these words today and just go on with life as normal, to go on with our routines because our time is too short. Lord, I pray, I pray so much for Becky this week as she has that opportunity. Lord, that you would soften hearts that your spirit would give Becky the words to say. Lord, I praise you for this opportunity and I just ask that all of us would be able to have eyes to see those opportunities before us as they are there more than we care to admit. Lord, I thank you for your grace. It has changed us. And I pray that that change would be evident to the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.